Hello. Tonight we're going to read James 1, 19 to 27. I'm as surprised as you are. So bear with me, please. Okay, here we go. From the NIV. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law and, uh, that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I'm back. Good to see you again, everyone. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk a little bit about obedience and discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that you open it up to our hearts and open our hearts up likewise to it. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're continuing through our series about discipleship, um, and this week we're talking about obedience. And this is sort of one of the cardinal passages about simply obeying the word of God um, in the Bible. And it's uh, a fascinating one and worth studying um, because obedience is simply not as simple as it's often cracked up to be. When I speak to the youth group here at SDBC, part of my domain here, um, there's a few ideas I like to circle back to over and over again because they're things that I wish I understood when I was a youth age person. Um, and I want them to grasp those ideas long before I did so they don't hit the same walls that I did. And one of those things that I like to, to go back to is what I would like to call the grace paradox, if I wasn't so sure someone had a better name for it already. But the grace paradox is the fact that being a follower of Jesus Christ is both the easiest possible thing you can do and also the hardest possible thing that you can do at the same time. It's both utterly effortless because the work is done by God to take away our sins and to draw mankind to himself. That's all done by God. We don't really have to expend effort to make that happen. And therefore, being a follower of Jesus Christ is the easiest possible thing that we can do. It's also the most totally life-consuming upheaval of difficult change that you could ask for. Because a real recipient of that completely effortless grace is going to have their life completely changed by it, and they're going to have to participate in that complete change. 
And that means not just nodding along and being happy about their decision to become a believer, but also obeying the commands of their Savior and their God in every aspect of their life. And that's not necessarily easy. And if we're not careful when we handle this grace paradox, we can be kind of dishonest in the way that we present the gospel. And this can happen in two ways. The, the first sign is the kind of sign here, please, decision harvesting that um, particularly was a foolish activity of youth groups back in the 80s and 90s. That was bring your friend to youth, bamboozle them with games and community, whip them into a state of impressionable joy, suggest they get baptized in the pool, dip them, flip them, load up another one. That was a legitimately sort of endorsed, somewhat, you know, maybe not that cynically, but an endorsed strategy of the church at that time. We need to get people to say the magic words, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then you're done, and then out they go. And oftentimes this is done with little follow-up, and, and often uh, with such hastily dunked teens that they don't know what they went through. Um, and now there's a big block of middle-aged people who have a vague memory of being baptized at a youth camp or something, but pretty much pretty much sure it didn't mean anything for them, and they've got just enough gospel to inoculate them to future attempts at witnessing to them. But that kind of movement is always a reaction to the opposite kind of movement, the wild purity testing um, that came before that, a testing of a person's behavior before they could really feel included in a community of God's people. Do they drink? Do they wear a hat in church? Are they divorced? Uh, do they participate in church events with high visibility? And as the category of legitimate followers of Jesus Christ kind of got smaller and smaller, the world cries out again for the kind of savior it was already given once, the kind that will go to people while they are still sinners and endure with them patiently while they make the sometimes radical and sometimes incremental adjustments to their life to become fully obedient to him. That's why the idea of repentance is so powerful. The literal meaning of repentance is to turn away from something, to rotate your direction, to be facing another way. If I'm facing one way and then I turn on my heel and I face another, in one sense, the whole thing is very simple. All I've done is moved a couple of muscles. It's just one guy in a whole universe of things that has moved. Very little has actually changed to anyone except me. Because to me, if I'm facing north, everything is north, and this is roughly north, right? Yeah. If I'm facing north, everything is north of me. Everything I see is north. If I rotate and I turn around, north is gone. Everything I see is south. North is a memory to me. The entire universe has shifted from my perspective. Everything that was left is now right. Everything that was right is now left. That is not a small change, even though it was easy for me to do at that moment. And while God's grace is free, it's not easy because to change the way we think and we act and we plan in every aspect of our lives is just not a trivial change. And when we turn from sin to God, we're committing ourselves by the grace that is free to the change that is not easy. And admittedly, some of us have embedded behaviors in our lives, things we've already taken on board that give us kind of a poorer turning radius than others. Sometimes God does such a miraculous, fantastic work in an individual's life that they're like a, a spiritual dirt bike that just... They plant their one heel, they rev it around in a gravel spraying circle and then rock it off down the straight and narrow like they've never faced any other way in their life. Others of us may feel like we're trying to turn around a rusty old bus with no power steering, heaving on the wheel to get another couple of degrees out of it, trying to bring the old girl around in an old battleship-style arc to maybe face the other way someday. But becoming a disciple is the long turn that comes after the grace-filled decision to make that turn. 
And that requires us to make hard decisions about how we live if we are serious about turning to God at all. And in this passage that we heard, James is targeting people who have seen the free grace and mistaken it for easy grace. He reminds them of their simple obligations to obey, to be obedient in the way they conduct themselves temperamentally about uh, what they surround themselves with, how they speak, and especially in regards to what they learn from God's word. So with a view to be better disciples ourselves, let's look at this passage in a little more detail. There's sort of three blocks in this passage. We'll go through them one at a time. Here's the first, James 1, verses 19 to 21. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Man's anger does not produce God's righteousness. This is a pretty well-known verse. It's often invoked specifically as a warning against people being angry and conducting themselves in an angry way. Um, But the specific context here is about listening to instruction and anger in response to that. This is an instructive word, particularly for people who do not listen to instructive words, which makes me very interested to know how it was received by the church that it was written to first. But... Because at some level, this person or these people are not taking discipleship seriously. They hear what's supposed to be a corrective word. They kick back, they self-justify, they use anger to deflect. And anyone who's ever dealt with children or honestly remembers being a child knows this kind of behavior. When you tell a kid to clean their room, you're not just telling them to clean their room as such. You're also saying in not so many words, keep your room clean so that you'll have the skills to look after yourself when I'm gone. Uh, If you live in filth, no one will respect you. You're going to attract rats. Um, You're trying to impose a whole lot of good instruction on them in a simple command that they're just not going to be able to understand. You want them to trust you and do that. But the kid doesn't know you're doing that. All they hear is stop doing fun thing, start doing irritating and boring thing. And then comes the back talk and the excuses. It's my room, I like this way. I know where everything is when it's on the floor. We'll just close the door when people are over. Why doesn't Emma have to clean her room? Why do you always pick on me for my room? Don't tell me what to do, being maybe the most cardinal back chat. To them, it seems like there's no point in the exercise, so they don't want to do it. And because they can't understand the long-term abstract benefit of a clean room, they fight every stupid inch of the way to get there. Now, if you take the same kids skydiving, as they are peering down at 12,000 feet of empty air, you can't imagine them chatting back to the parachute instructor. It's my parachute, I want to release it in front of the engine. Don't tell me what to do, if it doesn't matter if I hit the ground, just put a tarp over the crater. (laughs) The obvious value of listening makes a person less defensive. And if you don't see the reason for the instruction, it's hard to retain any of it, even if you don't kick back. And so James says, hey, when God's word is revealed to you, you're going to have to make an effort to suppress your desire to reject it. Treat it like it matters. Consider that there are things that you don't know because doing things your way has made you feel righteous but not led to the kind of righteousness that God desires. And that's the true righteousness. And therefore, verse 21, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This is interesting 
as a command because James doesn't explicitly list what filth and evil is in this case. And he's not talking about pagan practices since James is writing to the Jews here. He expects them to know. He says, you know what the garbage you are clinging to is, which you are defending even as it poisons you. You know what the moral filth is that you should get rid of, which is why you reject the word. So instead, reject the filth and accept some humility and accept the word. So the message universally applies to any stumbling block, whichever is most relevant to you, whichever thing you know you shouldn't be engaging in but feel compelled to defend on some level, maybe because you like it at some level and the abstract, the long-term instruction that this is a more holy way to be, to walk away from that isn't compelling enough to get you there. And James says, you know what the word is, accept it. Now, when we're talking about the word here, the text is a little open. The, the word here can't mean the Bible explicitly because the Bible wasn't assembled when James wrote that word there. And he's not just telling the Jews to be more obedient to the Old Testament scripture. The word is the instruction of God as a whole unit. Like Jesus described the word being scattered like seed on different soils. James says in verse 21, except the word planted in you. The word is the instruction of God from his written word, from the lips of a mentor, from the ache of your own conscience, all of these things being confirmed by the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the word to obey. But James goes on in verse 22 about reading the word, but not obeying it. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his reflection in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So having addressed the problem of not listening to the word at all, James moves on to the heart of obedient discipleship, doing what the word commands. The word, God's instruction on how we live and who we are, is like a mirror that is held up for us to look at, to see who we really are. It shows us how we are with all the imperfections and the stains of our sins on our face. It shows us the dirty cheek smear of bad attitudes, the eyelash sleep crust of bad spiritual habits, the tomato sauce at the corner of the mouth of neglecting our time in the scriptures, if you will permit a tortured metaphor to get there. To look in that mirror and to say, wow, I'm a mess, and then to turn away as if nothing had been seen at all is insanity. And it's the people who see their grimy face and then turn to wipe their face down in the sink. Those are the ones who hear the instruction of God and they know it to be true and they make repentance that they need to make and they turn away from that sin towards God. It's those ones who will be blessed in all they do. So we're seeing a, a sort of a pattern in James's verses here. He's not rebuking a specific sin. He's not giving new information like these Christians were ignorant of right and wrong. He's telling them they do know what they should be doing. The problem isn't information. It's willful disregard for the word out of pride or out of discomfort, out of a chosen foolishness over a hard wisdom. We justify ourselves. We get angry. We kick against the goad. We do all these things when we receive instruction and when we do, we choose a childish stubbornness instead of spiritual maturity. Verses 26 to 27 go on like this. Those who consider themselves religious 
Yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now there's other two possibilities with this uh, concluding pair of verses. Either James is having sort of a senior moment and loses track of his thoughts and starts talking about being nice and charitable to people. Or he's saying that our unwillingness to listen to God's correction and our like decision to deflect that correction with our own angry justifications or our self-defense, that's what damages our ability to live our faith. And it blinds us from how simple obedience can be. The widows and orphans who obviously need very uh, great charity, as they're mentioned here, um, that's an obvious compelling case for charitable love. And obviously a believer doesn't want to be polluted by the world. But a tongue without a tight rein, a defensive and a hostile attitude to this correction, that's a poison to a person's good faith. This is a pretty big claim, James is saying in an implied way, that unless we're able to be obedient in our own walk as disciples, unless we can tame our tongue and have some control over the way that we simply obey the things God asks us to do, to accept those simple convictions and change our behaviors, we're not going to be the kind of people who can have a simple and effective faith. How can we expect to assist people in distress if we can't assist ourselves, the people we know best and we get to control the actions of in some sense? How can you keep yourself from being polluted by the world if the pollution, the moral filth is in you and you are defending it rather than shoveling it out? Now this is easy enough to say, and at some level there's only one thing you can say to someone who isn't being obedient, and James says it. That thing is, do it. Stop not doing it, start doing it. Do the thing that you are meant to do that you know and that you are not doing. That's a fairly simple command, but it's just not that easy. For some of us, obedience is not a thing that comes easily. Some of us need to cultivate obedience like a skill. And this is not a commonly understood thing because everything we do, we repeat in our capacity to perform. Let me try that one again. Everything we do improves our ability to do that thing. Right? This is the idea that practice makes perfect. But that applies in all ways to us. If we're obedient consistently, we become more obedient, it becomes easy to be obedient. When we're foolish, it increases our capacity to be foolish. When we disobey God, it hardens us to the things he wants us to do. It makes it easier for us to be disobedient. And millions of Christians wake up, ignore the decisions they made the day before to do better, and they end up becoming better at avoiding obedience rather than becoming more obedient themselves. I learned an interesting fact about the human brain that changed the way I thought about obedience. Neuroscientists like to do brain scans on people all the time. That's kind of their thing. They'll hook someone up to their machine, and then they'll ask them questions about certain things, and they'll watch the different areas of the brain light up on the, on the scanning machine. And they'll go, oh, okay, this part of the brain is responsible for thinking about this particular topic. Um, and the prefrontal cortex is the most complex part of the brain, right? That's the bit at the front. Um, that's where we do our heavy-duty introspection, our moral thinking, all that stuff. And when a person is thinking about themselves, who they are, what their life is like, what, um, what condition they are in, 
The medial prefrontal cortex lights up like a Christmas tree. That's sort of one and a half inches behind your forehead. And when you think about someone else, those lights go away, and the lights appear somewhere else in your brain, sort of more dispersed. We're hardwired to think differently about ourselves and different people. We have different brain hardware for that. Here's the weird part. When we think about ourselves in the future, who we are going to be in five years, or what we are going to do in you know, a week from now to improve our work with God and our walk with him, when we are thinking about ourselves in the future in that capacity, our brain reacts as if we're talking about a stranger. And that's a weird thing to happen because that means when it comes time to obey ourself in our decision, it's as if we were told by someone else that maybe we don't necessarily respect. Then we'll find ourselves in an odd loop where we ignore the thing that we once felt really convicted to do and then feel really bad. Why didn't I do the thing I was going to do? Why do I, as Paul says, do the thing I don't want to do? And why don't I do the thing I do want to do? That's a weird thing to have to fight against. So when we're going to start a new commitment about reading the Bible every day and praying for half an hour, or some new step of obedience, we intend in the future those lights in the brain come on like as if we're talking about a stranger. And we mistake the need to do this, to make this decision to do better. We mistake the, the power to do that for willpower. Let me tell you what I mean. And this is certainly an idea of personal experience. Is when you fall down at some challenge you're trying to do. When I once had an idea where I was going to do my uh, one hour of prayer every day, I thought that was a pretty good habit. I read the book, um, 60 Minutes That Changed the World, convinced me I'm going to pray one hour every day. It divides up into nice little five minute discrete slices. You've got inter, um, intercession here, you've got prayer for mission here. It's a wonderful way to do it. I stuck to it for a while, but then I kept falling down because I'm, in some ways, a poorly organized person. And this broke my heart, and I couldn't understand why I couldn't do this, and I wish I had more willpower to be able to do it better. But willpower isn't really the thing that we need there. Willful children are the ones who are the most disobedient. I wish that I'd have more willpower to be able to, to stick to things like that, but it's really a matter of obedience, which is the opposite of willpower. Willful children are the most disobedient because they resist any change in instruction, and they... Willful adults make the most disobedient disciples because they instinctively reject God's word rather than listening to it. Or by making commitments about the future and then not honoring them because when the time comes, they want to do the thing they want to do then. A problem is not a lack of will, it's an abundance of will and a lack of simple obedience. So how do we cultivate simple obedience? How do we become better at obeying God's word when we hear it and we know we're supposed to do it? How do we become the kind of person who looks in the mirror and then sees what needs to be done and does it? Well, I'm not a master of that myself, but I'm a master compared to the person I used to be. And the things I'm going to offer here are not just ideas off the top of my head, they're the tried and true things that have been staples of cultivating obedient discipleship for hundreds of years. The first one is to start small. If you examine your conscience even for a little while, you will discover it is showing you all kinds of things that you are supposed to be doing what you aren't doing, or things that you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. And while we have the capacity to go away from the mirror and forget what we look like, the mirror is always there and we can go back to it. 
And thank God he doesn't reveal all of our faults at once. That would be so overwhelming, we'd barely be able to think. But if you ever have trouble obeying a command that you know you should obey, for example, that reading the scripture every day idea, reduce it to a size that you can do every day, that won't scare you off, that you won't reject when you're called to do it at 6 a.m. the next morning or whenever you decide to do it. Instead of going straight for the Bible in a year, five chapters a day challenge, set yourself a more modest goal of reading one chapter a day or five verses a day, something that you can do. And then you'll find once you've got that habit, that feeds into your ability to repeat it and do it again and do better. You can build on that little success to a bigger success rather than continually feeling like you're disappointing yourself and disappointing God by falling short of a bigger goal. The same goes for shutting down bad or distracting habits. If you've tried cold turkey and that didn't work, how about incrementally less of the thing that is ruining your spiritual life? A little bit less and less each week until it's gone completely. Treat yourself like a child who you are trying to teach new behavior, incremental improvements with overall success. But don't habitually set yourself up huge discipleship goals that you constantly fail at because you'll only get discouraged You'll become less and less likely to follow through in the future. Start small, build on those small wins. And secondly, have an accountability partner. If you don't have someone to whom you can report your successes and confess your failings and to like to see each other grow in Christ, then you are seriously taking out your own knees in this particular race. The truth is that we are way better at seeing each other's flaws than we are at seeing our own and we are way better at holding each other accountable than we are at holding ourselves accountable. And having a Christian friend to whom you can be scrupulously honest about your obedience and disobedience is the best way to make that difference work for you. God gave us one another to do our best work collaboratively as his people. Having someone else who wants to be obedient and is an amazing support for whatever habit you are trying to break or to build a new habit to reinforce That's a great thing to have, and you should definitely have one. And finally, you can plan for the future and have long-term goals, but act right now. Very few people can just decide to do something and then do it without having to struggle with themselves at some level. And the moment you are convicted with an idea to act, and particularly spiritual ideas, I need to improve my walk with God, You will find if about five seconds before your brain, if not your tongue, starts generating reasons why you shouldn't do that or why it'll be too hard to do that. This means if you've heard something tonight in this message that you know applies to you, that you should act on, then you and I know by the time you get to your car, the impetus to follow through on that change will be almost completely gone. Future you might not even want to be obedient to the thing that you decided tonight. The place where all your power to act is, is right now. So whether you need to start a new habit or break an old habit or find an accountability partner, I want to encourage you after we sing our final song tonight, before you get up and join us for supper and fellowship and race over for that one remaining brochure for power to change, before you do that, do whatever it is you need to do to start that little incremental improvement that you want to make. If you're looking for that accountability partner and they're here tonight and you would like to ask them, go over and ask them or send the text that you need to do to send to start that happening. Um, If it's the reading the Bible thing, 
Um, if you want to do that more effectively, um, to do it more consistently, then do that before you stand up as your first chapter tonight. Do James chapter 1. It's short. You just heard about it. Half the work is done for you. But if you put it off, and you know you are the kind of person who forgets things they put off, then you have no excuse for not succeeding there. That's a kind of spiritual laziness that you open yourself up to without even beginning to consider the fact that the devil does everything he can to undercut us when we're trying to become more Christ-like. You won't be judged for spending that extra five minutes in your seat and everyone here is a wonderful person who won't pressure you to get up and stop writing that important text if you look like you're busy. But take some small action now that is going to make a dent in the change that you need to make to be more obedient. And that's it. That's, there's a lot of other stuff you can obviously do to try and uh, improve your ability to follow through, but all of them spring out of those things. Breaking a task down into things small enough to actually succeed at, to feed on the encouragement of those successes, to become more obedient in little ways that add up to big ways, and to have someone to hold you accountable going through that process. And to do that right away before you lose the encouragement to do so. Do those things and you will find that obedience to the word becomes much easier. We're less likely to justify or get angry, more inclined to listen when we do these things. We're more capable of living the kind of righteous life that God desires. And important as anything, we find that we are living a life consistent with the gospel that we are telling others changed our lives. And that's the gospel that begins with a free and beautiful invitation of a gracious God and then carries through to a life full of greater and greater devotion and submission to his will. So let's pray. Father God, in each of us is the heart of an imperfect son or an imperfect daughter. And it's one that knows you and knows that we routinely fall short of obeying obeying your commands fully, Lord, in some part of our life at least. It's our desire to be better than this, to be more Christ-like, to be more like who you made us to be. We ask, Lord, that you would convict us now. Fill us with the courage that we need to be more obedient. Be with us as we seek out partners to hold us accountable or grapple to make some old habit we know we need to cut away, to go away. Help us to take some action tonight, Lord. That's the first step to looking back some time from now and seeing how faithful you've been in delivering us from evil. We ask this blessing in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.